Thanks for joining us today. We're taking a couple weeks off, so this is a rebroadcast of an earlier show. If you want to listen to past episodes, go to working9tothrive.com. That's with the number nine. Hi, welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. We're talking a lot this fall with homeschoolers to give people an idea about how much easier it could be in this pandemic time to educate your kids at home rather than do remote education, which takes a lot out of us. Homeschooling allows the adults to work, to work from home or not from home, separates out childcare from schooling, and it requires a very, very different mindset that is ultimately very liberating. My name is Janet McKenna-Lowry, and a little bit later today, I'll be talking with Sage Ingalls about educating your child with disabilities and working out a curriculum that really suits this particular kid. First of all, I want to talk about child-rearing books. I have a love-hate relationship with most child-rearing books. I read many, many, many books. First, because I'm a book lover, and second, because I had a lot of anxiety around having kids and being a good mom. All moms do. I didn't feel like I had that much in the way of good role models. So I was nervous about the whole thing, and I probably over-researched, over-read. That certainly is typical of me. So one of my clearest memories is when my oldest daughter was five and I had three kids under five. She was just starting to become aware, first of all, of her power as a person. That's something five-year-olds really discover. Second of all, she was having a lot of frustration around what turned out to be a learning disability, a reading disability, but we hadn't figured it out yet. But she knew something was in her way and it frustrated her terribly. And then there's this thing about five-year-olds. I was an aunt of many when I was still a child. And then I was a nanny for a number of years, several years on Long Island. And then I came up here and I had my own kids in Western Mass. And there's something about five-year-olds. I do know that Five-year-olds are actually more at risk in many ways than toddlers because parents tend to, as I did, put lots of child-proofing around the house for toddlers. Five-year-olds have a strange thing that happened. They're actually, they get injured a lot because they can either undo all the child-proofing or we've gotten past it because we really shouldn't need it by the time they're five. But a five-year-old looks at her environment and says, You've been wrong about a lot of things. Maybe you're wrong about if I put a knife in the power socket. Maybe you're wrong about that. A five-year-old says, you've been wrong about jumping on the bed. You said if I jumped on the bed, I'd fall off and hit my head, and I never did. So maybe you're wrong about eating this stuff that you told me in the medicine cabinet I wasn't supposed to eat. So five-year-olds just have a very different risk profile. Let's just say that. So when my oldest was five and was going through all of these kinds of changes, she was having temper tantrums. I wasn't sleeping and I had three children under three and I also suffered with some postpartum depression. I was having temper tantrums 
we were not a good mix. And I remember complaining about this to one of my sisters who doesn't have kids. And she said to me, oh, you should get this book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and How to Listen So Kids Will Talk. And I just was like, I'll do anything, fine. So I got this book. It's a very well-regarded book. And I still hear from parents who find it useful. And I got to tell you, I'm just going to out myself right now. I thought it was a piece of garbage because it was filled with drawings that were like Highlights Magazine, Goofus and Gallant. Here's the cartoon of the kids doing something you don't want them to do. And you order them around. And, and it's true that that isn't a very effective way to deal with your kids. So I agree with it philosophically. But then the second cartoon would be how you had changed everything into what felt like an ongoing therapy session. I know you called your brother a poopy head, but what do you think he thinks when you're, and you, you try to talk to a little kid like this and they're like, he thinks he's a poopy head because he is a poopy head. If you have smart kids, I never, it never seemed to work. Meanwhile, I had talked myself out and around ineffectively. I remember there was one cartoon about wet towels on the floor and how if you talk to them in this therapy-like way, they'll magically pick up the wet towels. That never happened. That never happened. I, I couldn't make any of those scenarios happen with human meat-based children. I found it absurd when I tried it. They thought I was talking like an idiot and they weren't, you know what? They weren't buying any of it. And honestly, I couldn't sell any of it because I felt like I don't necessarily, like I have a pretty good idea why you called your sister a poopy head and I don't need to know why you're doing it. I need you to stop. And that was never in that clarity was never in that book. I also think that people inappropriately overtalk to kids. Five is an age where they can probably follow along to a fair amount, but anything under five, I often hear parents explaining at length motivations and feelings and using I statements. I statements are great, but what they really want is clarity brevity and for this behavior to stop and so often we can act and we can require of our kids this cognitive load this following along of an extensive narration of hurt and uh, you've lost them i mean you see it glaze over you you yeah it, it it's it's more of a way to virtue signal to ourselves that we're being good parents because we're not just shouting at them and telling them to stop. But I do think there is something to be said for taking the leadership position of keeping it short. And sometimes short is stop. No is a complete sentence. My absolute favorite book in the world for child rearing, and it's very tongue-in-cheek, it's very funny, and it's incredibly useful, and it's called Miss Manor's Guide to Raising Perfect Children. What I like about it is that the author, Judith Martin, doesn't really go in for the overtalk, doesn't go in for that goofus and gallant kind of thing. She goes in with an idea of, first of all, manners, 
Second of all, the point of manners, which is that we all make it easier for us to get along. Not manners because you have to present as a certain class or manners as a jargon to like keep people out, but manners as a way to truly respect the people around you, to be considerate of the people around you, and to make it easier for them to reciprocate. And secondly, she has real clarity about how to deal with kids. And and I mentioned it a few minutes ago. Sometimes the answer is, I don't need to know why you're doing this. I actually have a pretty good idea why you're doing this. I need this behavior to stop. And a lot of times what Ms. Manners does, what Judith Martin does, is talk about saving face. Because often we get entrenched in the positions that we want to hold. But so do the kids. So they're entrenched in this sense of fairness, for example. And rather than go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about fairness and this and that, that's fair to them and this is fair to them, we can cut that down by a lot and say, I understand that this is an issue of fairness, but right now we're going to either share or leave and then follow through. You never make a threat. You don't follow through. In fact, you never make threats. A threat is something that you're not intending to follow through. A consequence is a statement followed by following through. So I really do like, I like this idea of not losing face and and considering that it's almost like a dignity piece for the child, considering that they have the right to their own dignity and that it's not up to us to demean them in any way, even as we may have to assert a certain authority to, you know, civilize our kids, basically, make them able to get along with other people, make them able to behave properly in public and with other groups of adults and children. She's pretty clear on the fact that, and this is a politeness thing that I cannot advocate enough, no child should be forced to hug another person. There's never a reason to override bodily autonomy socially for a child. Medically, yes. Socially, no. If a child does not want to hug or kiss anyone. And I say child, this is nothing about boys versus girls. This is all children. And every child goes through at least some stage of this. And we're mortified, right? I love this aunt, but now my child is rejecting them. We should never, unless we want to put our kids at desperate risk, we should never be asking them to override their bodily autonomy. Instead, he's going through a stage Auntie, he's going to send you a hug. And I did, in fact, make my kids do that. That was a place where I did lay down the law and assert. Because your bodily autonomy is your own, but the power hit you're getting when you see how much this hurts. Great Aunt Annie, that is not something to encourage. So we're going to keep the social connection. We're going to build the social connection, meaning you have to have an interaction with great aunt Annie that is polite, that is considerate of her as a person of dignity. 
So you're going to blow kisses and you're going to hug yourself and send it out to her and ask her to catch it. And I'm going to encourage that she catches the kisses in the air and catches the hugs in the air. This is especially great for COVID actually. And that no, we don't force anybody to hug or get close or embrace and physically touch anyone that they do not feel comfortable doing. It's a nice middle ground. Anyway, so Miss Manners is really good about that. One of the things I loved best about what she did, I'll talk about her again because uh, she's got some other really great hints and tricks, but one of the ones I love, 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 love because it's so useful on adults is I do not care to discuss it. She brings it up as the perfect answer to a repeated, but why? But why? But why? So the first time, again, brevity, especially kids under five. But why? It's not something we can do today. But why? We don't have enough time. But why? We have a lot of things going on. But why? I do not care to discuss it. My decision is made. I do not care to discuss it. Now, I had learned this and I had used this and it's very polite. And it's also assertive because the thing about manners is not being a doormat, but making good and kind boundaries for yourself and to help your kids. So I had learned this and I was working at a library and I had to create the schedule for the librarians. But as the lowest ranking administrative person there, I had no authority. My bosses had told me that I had to be fair with the librarians about when they had night shifts or shifts that were less, you know, ones right after lunch. There were these shifts that everybody hated. So I was in charge of making sure they were distributed equitably. So all I got was complaints from people who hated having to do any of this. And one librarian in particular came at me one afternoon demanding that everything be changed. I couldn't. I wasn't allowed to. And after the third time that I explained that she should talk to the department heads, I said, I do not care to discuss it. I do not care to discuss it. And I repeated that over and over and over until she left. And a few minutes later found that one of the supervisors was around a corner in an office that I hadn't been able to see. And he came out and he told me he was going to talk to the department heads about how brilliantly I had handled this awful situation. So in this world of people telling you to get the manager and, you know, sort of screeching at teenagers, learning to say, I do not care to discuss it is incredibly empowering. Next up, we're going to be talking with writer Sage Ingalls about homeschooling a neurodiverse child, transitioning them into school, and transitioning them back, especially when you have other kids who are neurotypical and you have to develop a family culture and expectations and then a routine and how incredibly important that process is to being able to do the work that you need to do, the focused work, and being able to allow 
all the kids in the family the attention and space they need to be able to do the, their best work. With me today is Sage Ingalls, and we're going to talk about how she homeschools her kids. How many kids have you got, Sage? I have four. Okay. And their ages? Five, seven, 10, and 12. 10 and 12. Great. Yeah. And you were just saying that this is one of those days where uh-huh. stuff is going to have to get moved around. Right. <laughs> and yeah, like every day. But today we cleaned my my 10 year old's room because he's supposed to start online schooling with the public school at 8:15 on Monday morning. Wow. And basically he's going to be on video Zoom all day long. How many he's hours? From 8:15 to 2:15 with an hour off from 12 to 1. Oh, that's a very I, long haul. He's 10? He's 10 and autistic. Oh wow. <laughs> and Zoom does not work. Like they tried that last spring, right? Right. They tried doing just two one hour sessions a week. Granted, they were doing them with larger groups. In one, he had 20 students, and one, he had seven. And now they are going to do just one teacher and another student. Oh, so wow. He's in, he's in a separated classroom called the BEST program. Okay. So they will separate him uh, this is the way he's being separated he's being taught with the one other fifth grader in that classroom uh-huh and then the sixth graders are meeting at another time and and with other teachers and things wow wow is that yeah. was that specifically tailored for his needs or oh no <laughs> okay I got an email that said we would set we would schedule meetings to talk about individualized education plans because that's what he has right yeah so what I got was an email from the, or a phone call from his teacher that said, here, I'm going to send you his schedule. Oh. And I was like, okay, so you plan on, how do you plan on keeping his attention? Because he's sitting in his bedroom full of toys on a computer and you're going to try to keep his focus on, on math work there with nobody sitting with him. He had, he didn't exactly have one-on-one last year. Uh He had four on seven. So he basically had one teacher for every two students and somebody sat next to him and redirected him to his work to get anything done every five minutes. And I explained that with three other kids in the house and I'm finishing my own memoir and running a household. Right. I can't sit with him for six hours a day on the computer. Right. And my request was, can you bring me his workbooks? Mm-hmm. Can you bring me his textbooks? And he can do self-directed work. Right. It's the social aspect of being on Zoom that becomes a problem. He either wants to show you the Lego he's working on mm-hmm. instead of paying attention to the work, 
or he gets distracted and literally leaves right. to go do something else. Right. Maybe he has to go to the bathroom and then in the bathroom, he gets reminded that he needs to go clean that thing up that he wanted. And then he remembers where his putty is and he's not going to go back to the computer because nothing's redirecting him to purpose. Right. Right. And I can, I can try, but six hours a day, five days a week, he's, he's not going to be terribly successful. Right. If he can work independently, his, just like with homeschooling, which we have been doing since, you know, April or something with him, he's done fine. Has he been homeschooled in the past? Yeah, he was homeschooled until second grade. And I had a lot of difficulty getting him to do anything that I could turn in as a, as a portfolio. Okay. He learns well, very well. In fact, he's, he's on the Asperger's end of the, what is now just called an autism spectrum disorder, but he memorizes facts and data. He was doing fifth grade math in his head in second grade, Mm. but I didn't have anything I could turn in and say, he's making progress in this because Really, for me, I didn't realize how simple it was to write a progress report. And so I was. <laughs> oh, I love that! Yeah, I was doing a I was doing a work sample portfolio right. for my other children because that was as simple as I could go, and I couldn't get anything from him. He wouldn't do workbooks. He wouldn't do worksheets. He wouldn't do anything I could turn in. Right. And so I asked the school system for an assessment, not knowing anything about really him being on the spectrum. I there's a chance I'm, I'm on the spectrum uh-huh. at the same end. He is a little more functional at this point, but when they said, you know, there's something wrong here. Can, do you, do you recognize what it is? And I had been told by other people not to diagnose my children. Right. Right. Like they right. don't want you playing, you know, so I said, no, I don't know. And they said he had to get, and I said, okay he's probably asperger's you know like because he would he had all the dinosaurs memorized and their scientific names and loved puzzles and you know there were was that end and they were like oh good (laughs) (laughs) and they went and got paperwork they were worried that if they brought it up that i would be defensive or or reject the idea right and for me getting his diagnosis and even getting his iep helped me to understand where he was coming from right and so my approach to him became very different. Mm. You know, I was, I guess I was kind of treating it as a behavior disorder before that. Right. And reasonably enough, it's got, it's got a behavioral component. Yeah. Right. So now that I know where he's coming from with overload and, and sensory issues and, and other things, I'm, I'm more able to work with him. Uh And honestly, since the school got shut down, he's done so much better at home. He's willing to get work done. He knows that if he gets his, you know, four or five pages a day that I request, he can pick which books he works on. He can pick which subjects. Then he can use the tools that we have, the the books or the the computer, to look up things that he's interested in. Uh huh. And so, my kids actually earn time. Yeah. This is great. They earn time on the computer, you know, listening to TED Ed videos. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, they they find audiobooks and they like they beg to to get to spend time listening to their audiobooks. So I'm like, okay, you can you can listen to your audiobook when your schoolwork's done. <laughs> and they, so they they end up learning. He spent a lot of time learning about politics this year, uh-huh. about the electoral college, and you know he's he's studying civics that I didn't study until I was in high school. Right. So I know now 
a to relax a little bit and let him do his learning the way he's doing it uh-huh. and to trust kind of his process and self-direction because he's he's learning a lot he's got it yeah right and and to not worry so much this year I learned how to make a progress report and how simple uh-huh. that could be yeah and it changed um, it's changed my life oh that's awesome <laughs> that's awesome I, it's so funny you should say that that is a learning curve right (laughs) I stressed about it I wanted to put in so much more information than I needed right and now I feel pretty silly for spending years worth of of portfolios and and standardized testing though we never actually completed any standard tests and turned them in I never I never used that model yeah I don't like standardized tests yeah I, I love that picture that has all the jungle animals lined up and the, there's a person at a table saying, to make this fair, we're going to give you all the same tests. Now climb that tree. <laughs> you know, and the goldfish is like. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not about to do that. No, although the practice is good. Like as like its own yeah. sort of game. Yeah. I remember going through with kids and being like, so they all have different rules. Some of them you should skip questions and some of them you shouldn't. And you're, you have to look that up before you take it. <laughs> It's like strategies and stuff. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really wild. So do you think you're going to end up, do you think you're going to, that he's getting enough out of school that, that that goes, or do you think he'll just let it sort of surf it and see where it goes? And well, he's come a long way. So the, the reason we enrolled him in the LEAP program, which is the separated classroom at the elementary school was because his behavior at home was making it difficult for us to get anything done with our other children. You know, I was spending 80% of my day managing his behavior Mm. and 20% trying to scrape together some schooling for my other kids. Mm. And it it was just untenable. The stress level and the the stress on my relationship with my 10-year-old was, it was reaching a breaking point. Mm. When they offered us services, I thought, okay, well, they'll take over the academic piece. Right. So that, that stress between him and I can go away. I don't have to fight him to sit at a table and do a worksheet. Right. You know, one worksheet a day even was like seven hours. It was a lot of, a lot of stress. Um, so I put him in, I, I enrolled him in the LEAP program, hoping that they would offer him the behavioral and, and social services that, that they were saying that they could provide him with. Mm. They had a, a social skills therapy group that met once a week and just some paras that would work with him in the class on academics. Okay. Yeah. Paraprofessionals. Right. Right. So he was, he was offered, it was like 60 minutes a day in, in the general ed classroom. And I uh, mistakenly expected that to be with some support, mm-hmm. like a para would go with him to those classes. That was not what was happening. And it ended up breaking down. Mm-hmm. He was going to school. He was gone for six hours a day. And therefore, I, I made a lot of progress with my other children. Right. But by the time the COVID happened, he was expelled for oh. destroying the classroom. Oh, several times in a week. And we tried, I tried to meet and figure out what was going on. I asked for a copy of his behavior plan and found out they didn't have one. Oh, that's awful with a kid on an IEP. This was for every kid, but. 
this was March. So they should have had an, a behavior plan in place in September. And I found out the, the last day that I went in to get him before they suspended him, they, he was sitting in the classroom and there were two, two adults in there with him blocking the doors so that he couldn't leave. And he was tearing things off the wall and upset. And when I walked in, he sat down on the floor and I sat down next to him. And after a minute, he said, I have to go to the bathroom. And I thought, okay, in our house, if he needs to go to the bathroom, we get that done very quickly. He doesn't have very good interoception. When he realizes he needs to go, it's usually urgent. Yeah. Because he doesn't pay attention. He doesn't feel that inside until it becomes urgent. So we walked to the bathroom and on the way he said, that's what started the problem. Oh no. This was three hours ago. He had finished a test, which he had waited in his seat to finish the test, then raised his hand to get to go to the bathroom because that was the procedure. And he had learned to do that. Even though he realized he needed to go to the bathroom during the test, he waited. Big progress for him. Yeah, huge. So a para went with him and they were walking down the hall and he saw another classroom was having snack. When he saw them having snack, he realized he was also hungry and he sank to the floor and laid down and they said, oh, this is a safety issue. We have to take you back to the classroom now. Oh, no. So they took him back to the classroom and he started throwing a fit because he still needed to go to the bathroom. Right. And Three hours later, when he was still destroying the classroom, they called me and said I had to take him home. So I got there, and he had been refused the bathroom for three hours. Oh, that is so awful. It was devastating for me as a parent, but it got worse. Once he was home and spending time with me, he started talking about things. We were looking at a picture of a bunch of kids sitting on one side of a bench and one child alone on the other end of the bench. Mm. You know how kids can be. They'll scoot as far as they can away from one person, the pariah. Yeah. He pointed at the picture and he said, oh, that's what it was like for me at school. Oh, God. And I thought, what? (laughs) (laughs) There was a parent log. There was a notebook going back and forth between me and the teachers every single day. Nobody ever mentioned that Eamon was being rejected by his classmates. And that's one of the reasons to send them. Right? They always say, socialization. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm talking with Sage Ingalls. I I was sending him to school so he could learn social skills he didn't have at home. Yeah. And here I find that he has literally been a pariah. Nobody spoke to him. Nobody talked to him. And I wrote the teacher and I said, listen, Eamon has explained this to me. What was going on? And they said, oh, yeah, at the beginning of the year, somebody saw him pick his nose and eat it. And he just became a pariah. Okay. And And they were okay with that. Okay. That's what I said. I was like, where did, where did you guys step in? Where should you have stepped in to say something to both Eamon and the other kids? Yeah. Well, what about teaching them about differences? Eamon is not, he has a, a, he's not neurotypical. Right. What, why, if he were in a wheelchair, you would explain to the other kids the differences that he needs. Yeah. You know, like how to include him in a ball game. Right. 
No. So I found out after he had come home that, that this had happened the entire year. Wow. And he had, he had just accepted it. He never said anything at home. He just, he said, I don't mind. You know, I'm an introvert. I don't mind that they're, bother- they're ignoring me. Oh, that's such a heavy weight for a 10-year-old. Yeah. And I mean, he was nine at the time and it was oh, yeah. fourth grade, you know, and that's only going to get worse. So in, in our town, they send fifth graders to the middle school. Middle mm-hmm. school is fifth through eighth, I think. And COVID hit, everything changed. He was home. Mm-hmm. They sent us packets of work and I was working with him at home. And he had no problem getting that work done. Now he had been for nine months, you know, at school right. doing worksheets. He was pleased to be home. Mm. He was willing to do a couple of pages a day. He realized all he had to do was a couple of pages and he could do whatever he wanted with the rest of his time. Right. No struggle. So the, the struggles we had before he went to school and learned the habit of working, which yeah. is the one thing school gave him, I think, they're gone. You know, those struggles are all, all disappeared. So now he fits. While he was gone to school, we also developed a culture of getting work done and then having playtime at home. And it relaxed. The school environment at home relaxed. Everybody has their own interests. They're all self-directed. They've all chosen to learn cursive this year. Oh, fun. So we got them all cursive workbooks. And that's basically what they're working on because they all wanted to learn how to do the, you know, loopy writing. So. <laughs> He came home, one of the things he came home with from school was a cursive workbook. And when the other kids saw it, they were like, I want to learn that. <laughs> and so now my seven-year-old and my 12-year-old are all learning cursive alongside him because he was doing it already. So yeah, that was really fun. But while he was attending school, we developed a culture here that, you know, just developed into a, a routine, I guess. Everybody gets up and has breakfast and then does schoolwork. And once it's done, they can do what they want. Mm. And because that's normal, everybody does it. Yep. And, and then we have, you know, reading time in the afternoon where everybody sits quietly and reads for a while and yeah, everybody's doing fine with it. And that has made it so much easier to do my, my five-year-old who has just started kindergarten this year. Right. He's, he's already used to seeing this right. for the last year he was four and we we have a language in our house where we we told him you're not in kindergarten yet you don't have to do any work right and so he was doing work right he was learning alphabet and and learning to read but it was fun for him yeah we had some paper schoolwork and some screen schoolwork and like abc mouse and reading eggs that sort of thing Mm. and he would do those for fun and we would just call it you know his choice Right. And now he's a big kid. He has to do work like everybody (laughs) else. He has, you know, a whole two pages of work he has to do a day or something. Just because the culture's already there, he now sits at his desk and does something and then goes on like everybody else. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's made it easier for me to do the work that I do from home. Right. Which right now is half running the household and keeping up with all of everybody's appointments and bills and all of that and half writing. Right. Because for the last 18 months I've been writing my memoir. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you're, yeah. So you get, well now that, that involves a focused time. 
right the writing i mean there's no way to write in tiny bits no <laughs> not. so how how is that how do you maintain that like last year last year for instance where your nine-year-old was away and so you were uh, homeschooling the rest of them when that was happening like i said we we developed a routine and a culture around everybody's gonna sit and do work mm. i think the the two that were home and myself are all extroverts uh-huh. and we we tend to cling to each other and get involved in what each other's doing even in the house yeah whether it's a book somebody's reading they'll want to run to another room and say hey look at this really funny part or anything like that and so we kind of had to learn to put blinders on and leave everybody else alone while we get our work done mm. <laughs> but I mean it's it's something we've managed at this point and that just took a little bit like a couple of weeks of reminding everybody I'm working here and you're working there and let's talk about it when we're done mm. that sort of thing do you meet separating with them? out the spaces oh yeah yeah go, go ahead. ahead with that go ahead with that separating out the spaces then I have, I have a question afterwards but yeah so we had a be- we have a beautiful schoolroom, really do. There's the house that we own used to have two apartments. Mm-hmm. So upstairs is three bedrooms and a big room that used to be like a living kitchen, living room kitchen. Okay. And it's just kind of in the middle of all of it, all the doors open to it. It really beats the things. So we turned it into a schoolroom and it has a sink. It has a sink. Anyway, <laughs> there's a bathroom off of it and there's a sink and there's a couch and we had a big table with chairs around it and everybody had their a box, a little plastic um, kind of basket that has their, that, whatever they're reading, their, the book that they're reading, the workbook they're working on, you know, um, tools that they're using, that sort of, they have a calculator or scissors that's all in their little box with their name on it. Uh-huh. And I thought it would be a great idea. Let's all sit around the table and do our work together. It was a horrible idea. Oh, really? Okay. It never worked. No, honestly, for our family, because as I said, we're so social, <laughs> it would nobody would get anything done because we'd all go in circles looking at what other, what each other was doing. <laughs> and I have just accomplished the task of separating everybody out. Everybody has a desk either in their own room or in a room where nobody else is working. Okay. And they have their own desk and their little baskets on their desk. And when I say it's school, everybody goes into separate places and focuses. Uh-huh. We were not doing well trying to trying to work at the same table. Mm. I did successfully write out of my memoir, sitting at the table with them, trying to redirect them, but it was way more difficult. Mm. It was it was more difficult to self to focus. Right. When I knew, you know, my, my 12 year old's chewing on a pencil next to me instead of doing his work or whatever. <laughs> well, I'm holding paper airplane. So what I wanted to ask was, do you meet with them regularly and, and talk about how this is going to go? Is the, is there sort of a family strategy? You've talked about culture, which is, I really love hearing about, cause I really love when something is sort of deliberately set up like that. But then, yeah, for this kind of thing, like how we're going to deal with this or that do you meet with them or does it just sort of happen on the fly absolutely um you have this changes the the change of moving everybody out to different space was a change that we discussed 
usually have these discussions at dinner since we're all there anyway. Mm. If I have an idea that I think will help, I bring it up and we talk about it. In this case, one or two of them really wanted to try to keep working at the same spot. And I convinced them that we were going to try to separate out and see if anybody gets any work done. Uh-huh. And my my oldest son will will go into my other son's room and they'll he'll work on the floor next to his desk. <laughs> They're getting the work done. I'm not arguing. <laughs> my five year old is at a desk beside mine. He has to be next to me so that I can keep him focused for the five minutes or whatever that he works a day. I I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a meme that shows, you know, a kindergartner needs 15 minutes of homeschooling a day. A fourth grader needs 20. Yeah. There's a list of it. And that's about accurate. Yeah. We, we maybe 15 minutes worth of work with, with the, that's, that's work I, I request. Right. And the rest of the time to be self-directed. Right. And that is the most unschooling I can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 love the idea of unschooling and and really letting themselves direct as much as possible but the social worker and the paperwork person that's in me can't accept nothing right. that I want them to be getting done so I I do minimums yeah of what I want to do and then they get to do what they want and I love it you know yeah. my 12-year-old is studying German and calculus because those are what interest him he read Dante's Inferno last year because he heard about it in a YouTube video and he wanted to know what it was. So oh, how I bought cool him a is that? Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm not concerned about academics. I know that my kids are learning brilliant and that speaks to them for five minutes says as much. Yeah. Wow, your kids are smart. Wow, they really, they're doing something. And the other thing is that I really love homeschooling for that that my kids have the option and opportunity and willingness to talk to people wherever Mm. we go of all ages Mm. you know they they know how to tailor their interactions to whatever a person they're talking to right because they have some experience interacting with people (laughs) people you know, everybody said there's the the joke, right? Of like unsocialized homeschoolers. (laughs) And I love, I love when people find out that we're homeschooled because they'll say, what do you do for socializing? And I'm like, you just had a conversation with him, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He talks to 40 year olds like you. Yeah. On this side of the hour, I'm going to talk a little bit about a book. You can read it as a book. It doesn't have to be a book, really. It's a website. It's a technique, I guess is a better way to put it. You're also welcome to read the book. It's an audiobook. And it is called The Work by a woman named Byron Katie, whose name, for some reason, is reversed. What I like about it, and this ties into what I talked about at the top of the hour about whether a lot of the times our beliefs, especially our beliefs and our limitations are just that beliefs and whether we can stop for a second and see that it's a belief. And then what do we do about that? 
a lot of times the things that we wish we could do, and, and more importantly, the things that we see other people doing, and we count ourselves out as not being good enough or the right kind of person or not even worth trying because there's something fundamentally, fatally flawed about us. It's a place where a lot of us are very, very comfortable because it fits into a worldview that we were raised in, one that we are easily sold to because that's what marketing often is about, is to make you feel terrible so that you'll go buy something to make you whole again. In this particular case, so what I'm talking about is when you think about when the first thing out of your mouth is, I can't do that because, but you're otherwise a little bit interested in it. You can't even see yourself experimenting. That is a red flag that you are running into problems with your belief system. The work by Byron Katie is a 360 degree rotational look at your own beliefs. It's a kind of meditative process. It's very interesting. I wasn't 100% sold on it when I first looked it up. But the fact is, it doesn't matter if you are. It's a very, very useful tool. And there's a series of questions that you ask about the thing that's at hand, the belief that you have. So a, so a common objection I hear from people a lot of times is, I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I don't have enough training to be a teacher to my kids. Discounting for just a minute the fact that that's absurd because every day of their lives since the first steps they made on this planet, you have been teaching them. So why would you be bad at it now? Discounting that for a minute, what the work does is lets you look at those beliefs from a 360 degree perspective by asking those beliefs questions. So if the belief is I'm not qualified to create a learning environment for my kids, the first question would be, is it true? Is this true? The second is, do I know for absolute certain that it's true? Because sometimes our first response is, yes, it's true. That's why I think it. The third question is, how do I feel when I believe this thing to be true? And the fourth is, how would I feel if I didn't believe this anymore? Those are the big four questions. Then she's got a bunch of subsidiary questions that are really interesting in which you flip those questions. So in this particular case, it might be, am I providing myself with a learning environment? Like, am I able to grow or, or do I, am I stuck in this relationship that I feel like it's only this one dimension? I, I tell them what to do. I'm their parent. We we're just, you know, I, I, I can't see having a different one. So can I see having a different relationship internally? Can I be part of this learning environment? Can the family be that. So that might be a way to walk through it. And actually, in a weird way, my favorite example is the fundamental mistrust of our kids. And I understand where this mistrust comes from. We 
order our kids around a lot. In fact, if you recall being a kid, it's pretty much all being ordered around. Very few adults truly elicit cooperation from their kids. And it's a shame because it is a skill that we can learn. It's a transferable skill. We'll become much better uh, managers. We'll become much more effective leaders in other parts of our lives if we can learn these skills. But often they're distilled down to just barking out orders to our kids. And we watch the kids and we see them in a school environment and we think, I can't make them do the work. And we forget that the only reason we have to make them do the work is because it is of such low importance and interest to the kids. And if we do take time to consider that, we often then discount that as though that's an absurd point of view, that it's stupid, that it doesn't matter if it's interesting or not, that in fact, it somehow is a way to spoil them to feel interested in the work that they do. It's a, it's a, some kind of, I'm not even sure. Again, we kind of view it as, as contempt. School is not supposed to be something that interests you. You're just supposed to do the work and succeed. And yet there's no correlation between doing this work that is often so meaningless and actual success in later life. And I think if you took a pause for a second, you could name a long list of kids that you grew up with who were diligent students, did what they were told, and live unhappy, unsuccessful lives now. And equally, I'm sure we could pull a ton of names out of kids that we knew who slacked off all the time and didn't do well, who are doing really nifty things, doing maybe following something that everyone told them wasn't going to suit them, or maybe made a ton of money, or maybe they're super happy or benefit the world in some way. It really doesn't, there's no correlation between how we did in school and our happiness afterwards, which is really interesting given the amount of misery that we devote ourselves to, to making kids do often meaningless, unengaging work at school. Not only that, but study after study after study after study after study recognizes that in the working world, misery at work is often the exact dynamic that makes kids miserable. We're given meaningless work. We're told what to do. We have very little control over how we do it. We often don't understand what the goals are. We often have no input on those goals. So when we start from a place of saying, well, it all sounds great, but my kid just isn't going to do that work. And they're not going to, how will I make them do it? The entire point of homeschooling is to create with the family work that you don't need to make somebody do. So that's the first thing to understand. But the second thing to understand is to think about these four questions, noticing the places where if we don't think our kids are going to do the work, so so you say, okay, that's well and good, so fine, you do all this work and you figure out what kind of 
I'm going to say essentially self-made curriculum you're going to follow, but then how am I going to make them do it? The first thing is going to be, is it true? Is it true that having given your kids agency and trust and a voice, is it true that they will not do any of the work and you will have no way, you will be a bad parent. You will have no way of addressing this. Is that true? Are you absolutely certain that it is true? How do you feel when you think of that it is true? Probably feel pretty bad that you can't trust your kids. How would you feel if it wasn't true? How would you feel if it was reversed? How would you feel if you could trust your kids? How would you behave for the rest of today? How would you behave tomorrow if you behaved as though you could trust your kids? And honestly, it's an experiment and it's all an experiment in failing upwards, if you will. So how dire would it be if you trusted them for a week and checked back in? How terrible a catastrophe would it be if you trusted them for two weeks and checked back in? How much of a disaster would it be if you trusted them for a month and checked back in? And then that part of this, the concept of the work where you turn it back on yourself comes in really handy here, which is, do I trust myself? Do my kids trust me to be a person of my word? Do they trust me to provide this learning environment that they need? Do they trust me to not come in and micromanage and order them around and tell them what to do? Do they trust me to trust them? One thing that is abundantly clear as parents, and it never gets less true, is that raising kids is a long game. We are related to these people until the day we die. It's not about whether we get along right now or tonight or tomorrow morning or last week. It's about whether these relationships will last strongly, positively, or at least reasonably well in the coming years. We don't raise kids, we raise adults. I don't think any of us want to find ourselves in the place that we swap around for people that we had to stop interacting with people that we had to create boundaries because they were always crossing them because they didn't trust us because there was no getting along with them because those people didn't spend the time, the effort, the openness, the trust to get along with us. I don't know of anyone that wants to be that person. But I also know of a lot of people who don't really think hard about how they want this relationship to go. How they, There's just sort of this Hallmark card in the future and you hope you get it for Mother's Day. But there's a lot of people who, when they grow up, really want nothing more to do with their parents. And they have usually a darn good reason. I don't think any of us want to be that person. 
But we are social animals. We are primates. We are wired to want to be with others on some level. We are wired to want to have strong relationships. It's part of being a healthy, well-adjusted person, something we want for ourselves, something we want for our kids. So when we use this idea of Byron Katie's The Work, we can stop ourselves in our tracks and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if it wasn't just this way? What if there was other ways? How would we behave? The other thing I like about this, and one of the reasons I like to advocate for it, besides the fact that it's a fascinating exercise that can inform all sorts of things that we do, but that it's free. It's like a lot of the various curriculums and ideas that we talk about on this show. This thing is free. It's called thework.com. So applause to her for getting that, that web address really early. It's another one of those places where it doesn't hurt to try it. And it can really help to clarify how you see yourself. It doesn't, it's not a magic bullet. It doesn't magically erase all the problems you're going to have, but it does let you really challenge yourself and challenge your deep set beliefs. And I think when we challenge our deep set beliefs, we have a better chance of connecting with each other. Thanks for letting me connect with you. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next time. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.